Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, July the 21st, 2022. It is currently 2.20 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And it's time once again to turn our attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Now, when this idea originally came to me, I had no intention for this to turn into a series But here we are, we are in the middle of a brand new series that wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't designed to happen this way. But one of the things I love about podcasting the way I do is I just kind of let, I just, I just like every day something new happens. We, we stumble upon this. We end up having this conversation. We end up talking about this or someone sends me an email or someone. And I just like the way that it's a very organic, the way things kind of develop here on the Theology Central podcast. I hope you appreciate it. I guess if you don't appreciate it, I do appreciate it because it's much more fun this way. And I, I well, I enjoy myself. And I guess if, if I didn't enjoy myself, I don't know if I would continue to do this. So I maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, right? Maybe I'm, I should see it more as a responsibility. It is responsibility. But I think when it comes to talking theology, doctrine, church history, uh, Bible study, I, I, li- I think it's better when it comes from a per- a perspective not so much of duty but as there's a there's just a, a joy in wanting to talk about it. I, we, we could have a philosophical discussion about that. But are you ready? All right? Here's what we have done. Well, let's just do this. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. Let's not even talk about what we've done. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17 because we're going to see if we can move this forward instead of spending time looking backwards, we're going to look forward. Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, Revelation chapter 17. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with a with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Verse 5. And upon her forehead was a great name written, Mystery Babylon. I want you to hear that. Mystery Babylon. So this is the, upon her forehead, it's the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So the question that I turned on the microphone and did in part one and asked in part one is very simple. What is the identity of Mystery Babylon? Who is Mystery Babylon? What is Mystery Babylon? How do you identify it? And I've made an argument that in many, t- in many cases, in many situations, 
pastors make a horrible mistake in how they preach. What they have a tendency to do is they give everyone some sense of certainty at the expense of truth. What do I mean by that? They come to a biblical passage where there's 10, 15 different interpretations. There's been very little agreement. There's all kinds of back and forth among people who are godly and people who care about the word of God, but there's so much difficulty, meaning the text is very hard to understand. It is complex. And pastors love to stand behind the pulpit and say, hey, there's some people who throw out a view like this or a view like this, but those views are wrong. It's really very simple. It's this. And then everyone in the pew goes, amen. And they walk out thinking, oh, see, that passage is not complicated. It's very simple because they've never actually engaged in the text. You were given certainty at the expense of the actual truth about the text. You were given certainty to keep you from the reality of the text. And that should bother you. Pastors should be willing to go, look, everyone, this is a very difficult passage. There's lots of different ideas here. We're going to spend, if we have to spend weeks, months, if we have to spend a year trying to figure it out, we're going to work together. I like that idea of having the congregation feel like they're a part of the process instead of just sitting, listening to someone who most likely got their information from another book or some from something else and just saying, let's work together on this. And then everyone struggles. And, and a lot of times you end and you know what you end up with? Hey, I, I don't have a good answer. Do you have a good answer? We don't have a good answer. And everyone should say, amen, because now we are, we've seen maybe the truth of the text and its complexities and its controversies, instead of just being willing to just get a little, a little bit of certainty. So many Christians want certainty. They don't want truth. They want easy answers. They don't want difficulty. They just want to be told. They don't want to study. They want it easy, simple, and they want to be out by noon. Now that's fine. If you like that kind of church and that's the kind of teaching you like, it's available everywhere. But I think there needs to be places where we can do something a little different. And so that's what we're trying to do. So we've been trying to identify, well, who is Mystery Babylon? Now, the original goal was just to demonstrate that there are so many different views out there. And then I was going to play some audio from a preacher who's like, hey, this is super clear. It's super easy. It's so easy. And then say, see, that's that's trying to give certainty at the expense of truth. So we looked at at least five possible views or, po- or five possible identities for Mystery Babylon, all right? Views on the identity of Babylon. The first one is that Babylon here, Mystery Babylon, does not, it's not a country, it's not a nation, it's not a city. It simply, simply is a representation of the apostate, Christendom or the apostate church, that really Babylon here is just a symbol. It's a symbol for apostate Christendom or the apostate church. That mystery Babylon here, that's apostate Christianity. That's the apostate church. Not just one, but all churches that are apostate, all forms of Christianity that are apostate, that Babylon represents all of them. All right, that's that was view number one. View number two is that Babylon is an actual city. However, it's not using the real name of the city. It's code. Babylon is a city, but Babylon is not Babylon. Not Babylon on the Euphrates. No, it's Babylon, which means it's actually Rome. It's a code. When you read Babylon, you're supposed to read the city of Rome, right? That's 
That's been taught throughout church history. Now, if you go back to part one, you can hear all of the different strengths and weaknesses about these views, all right? So view number one, it's just symbolic, and it represents the apostate church, apostate Christianity. View number two, it's an actual city, but it's code. They're using the word Babylon, but you're supposed to see through the code. You're supposed to get the decipher ring and realize that Babylon actually means Rome. Number three, and this one is a little facetious. This one is is making a joke that it's actually, it is a city, but it's code. If you read through the code, Babylon is Dallas, Texas. Now, I wanted to say Las Vegas, but... Uh, we have an article here that says, no, it's Dallas, Texas, and they're trying to be facetious as well. What they try to show you is if you look at some of the, the, the descriptors of Babylon, you could apply that to all kinds of different cities. So in other words, the minute you say Babylon is a city, but it's code for an, an actual different city, you really could plug in any city. You could plug in, well, maybe not any, you could plug in many. I think that's the best way to say it. You could plug in many there. And so we went through all the possible ways we could try to make it apply to Dallas, Texas. That was just to be facetious. That was just to be a little bit over the top, all right? Just to try to make a point. The next one is, see, um, did I miss one here? So we got Rome, we got Dallas, Texas. Next, it um, is Babylon on the Euphrates River. When it says Babylon, it's referring to Babylon, the nation, the city of Babylon. And that this is referring to the fact that sometime in the future, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't, there's, there's so many things we may not know. Babylon will basically be rebuilt, the city will be restored, and this will be Babylon, and it will be the place of religious and political power, all right? Another view is see here. Um, I think there was another view here that I'm, I'm missing here. Oh, Jerusalem. Yes, I missed Jerusalem. Um, another view is that it's Jerusalem, and this is uh, sometimes fits with the preterist view, and we and this has a lot to, to try to prove that this is Jerusalem. You have to have a dating of the book of Revelation prior to 70 AD. We won't go through all of that discussion again. So, so let's go through these again. I'll read them in the correct order. I apologize. Um, the first one is apostate, it's symbolic, it's apostate Christendom or the apostate church. Second, Babylon is an actual city, in Reve- that's mentioned in Revelation 17, but it's code for the city of Rome. Number three, that well, it's code for a, d- a different city, and well, we could have put something like Dallas, Texas in there, just to demonstrate that if you make it a code for a city, well, you could argue all day of which city that it is. Number four, Jerusalem. And then number five, well, it just means, well, it means Babylon on the Euphrates, okay? It just means what it seems to mean, and and that it's easier to go with that than trying to do all of these other conjectures, all right? So that's what we presented, we worked through, we spent about an hour and eight minutes working on all of that. Then we started playing audio from Jack Hibbs, from his podcast, his radio program, I think it's called Real Life. With Jack Hibbs, let me see, I've got the, yeah, Real Life with Jack Hibbs, or Real Life Radio with Jack Hibbs. Uh, They have their own app, and we started listening to him, because he was going to, because he, according to him, the identity of Mystery Babylon, it is so clear in Revelation 17. It's so clear. It's not even debatable. It's so clear. But after reviewing an entire episode of his podcast, he still didn't really explain what it is. He seems to be going in a direction that Babylon is not a city. It's not really the apostate church. 
that Babylon is simply symbol a symbol for a anti-God philosophy and an and an anti-God religion. That it's more just symbolic of a sim of, of a of a philosophy, of an ideology, of a religious belief. It's just symbol, a symbol of that. That it's more of a religious or philosophical system combined that is very anti-God. That seems to be where he is going. But he would never just clearly say this is what it is. It was really weird. So we we reviewed the first episode where he dealt with this. Well, now we're going to move on to the second episode. The, the first one was 1A, this is 1B, so it's the continuation of the same sermon. Again, this is from Real Life Radio uh, with Jack Hibbs. You should subscribe to the podcast. You should listen. He does a lot of discussion about biblical prophecy. I don't always agree, but and he, he typically teaches verse by verse. However, we there was some frustration in how he handled parts of the text, but you can Listen for yourself. I still think you may find it to be beneficial. If you look for Real Life with Jack Hibbs app for your uh, Apple device or Android, you can download it. And anytime they go live, you'll get a notification as well so that you can listen to them live. Um, So I, I just want you to point. I want to point you in their direction so that you can listen to everything they have to say. But we're just interested in just all I want to do is get to where he goes. Here is the identity of Mystery Babylon. That you can at least hear his point of view to just add to this discussion. So are you ready? That took 13 minutes. Here we go. Jack Hibbs, Real Life Radio, The the Road to Identifying Babylon, I think is the, the, what he calls this. We're just calling it Identifying, or the identi- or identifying Babylon, and hopefully this will be beneficial. Thinking caps on. Well, we're going to analyze this, critique it, and tear it apart, and we're going to see what we can discover. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. The Bible says when, when Jesus went into the Gentile regions, he saw a man and he spit on the ground and made clay and put it on the man's eyes. So if right now, if I took that verse and said, all right, bring in a dump truck, everyone, and you get, well, it's right here in the Bible. It says Jesus did be, did use dirt. Okay, now come on up here and let me spit on your face and put dirt in your eyes. And there you go. And if you, listen, you, you laugh and all make fun of that stuff, but that's what's happening in the world when people take the Bible, they're false prophets, and they say, well, after all, the Bible says, and they give you some absolute verse and its meaning is completely out of context, and you're led astray, and you say, well, after all, they use the Bible. Okay, there's a couple of funny things about this clip. Number one, what's so bizarre is this is supposed to be a verse-by-verse through Revelation 17, and he he just seems to get so off track. And what is funny is just preceding this, he took a verse from Matthew 24 that he completely ripped out of context. And completely removed it from the context of it speaking about the time period coming before 70 AD. He ripped it out of that context and applied it to the future without any explanation or even doing anything with it. So he's condemning all those other people who take verses out of context, but he never does. And you know what? We all have to be careful of that. It's always easy to condemn everyone else from ripping something out of context. We always got to look to ourselves to see how are we ripping something out of context. But if you're asking like, what is this? Wait, Jesus spitting on dirt? Well, what does this have to do with Revelation 17 and the, and the identity of mystery Babylon? 
Well, we were asking that a lot in, in the last episode when we were reviewing his message. We were like, could you just tell us who Mystery Babylon is? Because you said it's so clear. But it's like, he's like, it's clear, butterfly. Now we're going to go way over here. I'm not saying it's completely unrelated, but it just seems odd that he would, because to me, this is what you would do. Here is the identity of Mystery Babylon. Now we're going to spend the next six weeks working on proving that identity. But he's like, the identity is clear. Now we're going to go spend six weeks. I'm not saying they spend six weeks, but we're going to spend a time period now just chasing possibly random verses that I think are somehow linked together. It's really an interesting approach, but all we want to know is who is Mystery Babylon according to your view? Let's see if we ever get an answer. Did not Satan use the Bible against Jesus Christ in the wilderness of temptation. Didn't he not? That's why the Bible says that we are to use the sword of the spirit. I've said this before, it bears repeating. The word in Greek is makaira. The Roman soldier had two swords, the imperial broadsword. You've all seen that one. When Russell Crowe pulled it out, it was gigantic. It's a Okay, this gets weird. And again, this, I know what you're thinking. No, you're reviewing the audio from yesterday. No, this is part two, the way they put it in their podcast. If you don't know how it works for many of these broadcasts, it's really crazy that many radio radio ministries, all they do is take the sermon and they just edit it up. So they need it to fit like, you know, a 24 minute time period. So they'll just like uh, on one, on say on a Monday, you hear this much of the sermon. And then on Tuesday, they go back and play a good portion of the same and then advance it just a little bit. At times it's maddening. It's time it's mad. And not only that, it just drives me crazy that you have an entire radio ministry where people send you millions of dollars. I'm not saying he gets millions of dollars, but in many cases, radio ministries. And all it is, is just edited sermons. So why would you just post your entire sermon online? It's just really weird how they do that. But okay, we can have a discussion. But this gets really odd to me. We'll spend a little bit more time talking about this. In his illustration, or, or let's, let's go with this. He states a fact that Roman soldiers had different swords, that a, a giant long sword, and then they had a smaller sword that was more for uh, close to close. Um, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat, right? A long sword where you can keep people at a distance, but when, 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 when things get really bad, you may have to throw that down, discard that one, and then you grab your smaller sword so that you can fight up close and personal, more hand-to-hand type combat. Okay, that's, that's great historical information. But he states, it gets really weird, but he, this is kind of his philosophy. There are some verses in the Bible that are, now the Bible just refers to, the Bible describes itself as a sword. It is the sword of the spirit. So the Bible itself, the whole Bible is our sword. But he tries to argue that the Bible is the sword, but different verses are different kinds of sword. Some swords are, I guess, are the long swords and they're used for certain issues. And then others are kind of the small sword for hand-to-hand combat. And you've got to know which verse is which sword so that you use it in the appropriate manner. The only problem is he, 
he he cited Genesis 1-1 and saying, that's the wrong sword when you're facing temptation. But I was able to easily go, no, wait a minute. If I'm facing temptation, it's always important to remember that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, and therefore he is sovereign, and he's the one who determines right and wrong, not my desire, not my feelings at this very moment. So I thought it was very applicable to use Genesis 1-1, but according to him, no, it's the wrong sword. And I never really heard this idea that, well, the Bible is a sword, but reality, it's many swords, and you got to know which sword to pick up at the at the at the appropriate time. Now, I think what he's trying to say is you got to know how to apply the text correctly. But what's bizarre is he's already shown his inability to do it correctly when he ripped a verse out of context in Matthew 24. So, but again, this has nothing to do with what does this have to do with Revelation 17? What does this have to do with Mystery Babylon? It's very frustrating, and I know what you're saying. Well, then why are we reviewing it? Well, once you start down the once you kind of start driving the road, you got to go all the way until you reach your destination. So we've started this. No matter how many twists and turns there are, we're going to figure out what his view is on the identity of Babylon. And then we will either say, see, that corresponds with the five we gave. Or wait, ladies and gentlemen, this is number six. We have a new theory about it, which will only demonstrate it's not as simple and as easy and as certain as he claimed at the beginning of the sermon that we are reviewing. But listen to this very interesting discussion about, I guess, knowing which sword to use. It, it, yeah, here we go. About four, three and a half, four feet long in the gladiator. Man, when they get that baby going, they look like a helicopter moving. It's huge. Most of it is used for intimidation, crowd control, seriously. But when they got that thing going, the inertia of it, it's like a helicopter blade going. That thing's massive. But when you got into close face-to-face combat, you jettisoned your broadsword and you pulled out your Makaira. Your Makaira was a blade that's 18 inches in length. Why 18 inches? Because it doesn't matter how fat you are. Seriously, it doesn't matter how fat your opponent is. If you take that sword and you ram it in, remember, you're wrestling with the guy. You're down and you're up and you're down and you're up and you're wrestling and you're not looking. You're not swinging, the, you're not swinging a big sword. You're, you've got the Makaira. You take that thing and you're fighting, you're fighting all of a sudden, wham! And you don't have to look because all you have to do is ram it in all the way enough to where it hits the hilt. And if you feel it bottom out, your opponent will be dying soon. How do you know? Because it went in 18 inches. Makaira, 18 inches. That means you've hit a vital organ. They're going to be dying. They they will not live long. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says of itself that when you fight Satan, you are to not quote Genesis 1-1. Gosh, I'm being tempted. There's a a naked man standing in my... I mean, mean, that sounds so incredibly gross. As gross as... (laughs) But maybe that's because I'm a man. I don't know. There's a naked man and a naked woman standing at my doorstep. I don't know if that'd be a temptation to you or not. I think you'd throw up. But if they're standing there, what do you... Oh, oh, I'm being tempted. Uh, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. My friend, you're just swinging the broadsword. That to me is so messed up. Hey, there's a temptation. Don't quote Genesis 1-1. No, I need to be constantly reminded there is a God. let, Let me make it very, I'll try to explain this to you. Whenever you face a temptation... The very, uh, the, the, the key element of temptation is to make you at that very moment forget about God. 
Temptation is to draw your attention away from God to the object. And for that moment, the object becomes your God because all you care about is that. You want that. You want to serve that. You want that to serve you. Whatever the case may be, for that moment, God doesn't exist. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no demons. That's just the object. Right? That's the key. The, the, it's very important that, in, in a sense, if you, if you read the temptation of Eve, you can see in a sense that, hey, I'm gonna, I want you to start focusing on the fruit. I'm going to get you focusing on fruit. I'm going to get you focusing on the tree. If I can get you focused on that, you'll forget about the creator. You'll forget about God. It's very subtle, but it works. Is like whenever that temptation is there, one of the things you need to be reminded is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You are created by God. There is a God. God is the one who determines right and wrong. How can he arrogantly say, that's not going to do you any good? That's just like swinging a broadsword. How can he say that? That either seems to not understand temptation. It clearly is very disrespectful to the word of God. Being reminded every day that, no, there is a God. I am created in his image. Therefore, my purpose and right and wrong is determined by him, not by me. I, at the moment of all, of the moment at any temptation, I need to remember God. That, that's the key. Whenever I'm facing temptation, I need to remember God. Because if I can remember God, then it breaks, in a sense, that temporary spell and it destroys, it, it at least gets my focus off that temptation becoming God. Like, you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve the temptation. One way or the other, to quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody, right? You're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve something. But who is, is it going to be? The creator God or the God of temptation, the God of pleasure, in many cases, we serve the God of pleasure over the God of creation. We serve the creation more than the creator. Isn't that the whole thing in Romans? When they rejected God, they began to serve the creation and worship the creation. Why would he say Genesis 1 is not helpful? That it, I, And not only that, not only does this irritate me to no end, I think it's horrible advice, horrible theology, horrible even handling of scripture, but we're still trying to figure out what does this have to do with Revelation 17, which is this is supposed to be an exposition of. I don't know how we got here, but please listen. His advice here is horrible. Okay, I, I'm, 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 I, I don't like to be mean, but this is horrible advice. Let me state it again. Temptations, this out, temptation is an attempt to get you to not to forget God, to not focus on God, and for you to focus and commit to this substitute God. Every temptation is a substitute God. Worship me. Serve me. Look to me. I will please you. I will give you what you want. I will give you what you need. I don't think we look at that. Every temptation is an idol. Every temptation is a false deity. We need to be reminded constantly that there is a God. Genesis 1.1 is an amazing verse to help you do that. He's saying, nope, that, that verse won't help you. Really? It won't? Okay. It is the Bible, but it's wrong application. Did you hear that? Uh, Genesis 1-1 will not help you against temptation. 
You need to go to the book of Corinthians, for example, and you need to quote that wonderful scripture where it says that God, who, when a temptation is brought upon me, is faithful to provide a way of escape. In the book of Romans, you can stand there and say, the book of Romans declares unto me that no sin shall have dominion over me. And you slam that door and run away and take a cold shower if you have to. But you use the Machaira, the sword of the Spirit. And that- Let me just make sure we understand. The entire Bible is the sword of the Spirit. It's not one verse is and one verse isn't. I do agree that you need correct application and correct usage, but he's already demonstrated. He, he did. If you don't understand how to use Genesis 1-1 when facing temptation, then I... I I give up. I, I, I give up. Okay, but all, but all we care about is, who is Babylon that you said was so easy to identify? Yet you're, you're, you're 5,000 miles from your, the whole thing that we're supposed to be studying. Let's hope he gets back to this, and hopefully we can advance this. That's how you and I in these last days will be discerning the age and the times in which we live. Just because you go to a church, they've got a steeple or a cross or they got bells or, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Is the Bible going out and is it changing your life? And do you know how to use it? This is so vital. Matthew 24, 14, excuse me, Matthew 24, 24. Jesus said, in the last days, false prophets and false Christ will arise, showing great signs and wonders. We have not yet seen that in full scale in America yet. It's coming. There we go. He, he quotes Matthew 24. Doesn't in any way, shape, or form try to articulate that the chapter first and foremost is about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, because that's the question Jesus is, at, is at answering. He was asked by the disciples, because they point out the buildings. Jesus say, all these buildings are going to be destroyed. And they're like, when is this going to happen? And then Jesus begins to outline the sign. I'm not saying that there isn't, or the signs. I'm not saying that there isn't anything that relates to the future. You can go listen to our Bible study exercise. We worked on Matthew 24 for what, six weeks, seven weeks. We did plenty of work on there. We looked at it from many different perspectives, but we we clearly were able to de- demonstrate in many cases, looking at historical documentation, that a good portion of that was fulfilled prior to 70 AD. He just ignores that. But he's the one telling everyone, you got to know how to use the sword. You got to know how to use the sword. Well, then if you're going to quote Matthew 24, I think maybe you need to explain to everyone there, there's a clear historical application and then some, some parts may go to the future. But he leaves that out. It's happening in many parts of the world, by the way. To deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you these things before they happen, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 25. The Apostle Paul, no doubt, had the words of Jesus hot upon his heart when he warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He got them together in Acts chapter 20. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Don't think this is some old crusty verse. It's more applicable now than ever before. Acts 20, verses 27 to 23. Paul got all of those guys together in Miletus when he was on the shore he said he called for the Ephesian elders. They left Turkey. This, by the way, this situation took place in Turkey. They're right there on the shoreline. He's getting ready to leave. And he's telling them, you're never going to see me again. And what does he say at this pastor's conference that he calls? What's the greatest thing he could tell them? How to do a sermon? How to use PowerPoint? You know what he said to them? We have it recorded in verse 27. 
Acts 20, 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you the full counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Whose blood? Anybody whose? Yeah, you said Jesus, but it says the, here, and that's true, but it says to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who's Jesus? None other than the second person of the Holy Trinity. God shed his blood upon the cross to save man. For I know this, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. And that's true today. Not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves. Among yourselves. From your church. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for the three years I did not cease to warn you night and day with tears. So now, brethren, listen, Paul can only do what Paul can only do. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, everybody? Did you hear that? Paul the Apostle, what would Paul the Apostle do right now? Church, listen, if he was here right now, he'd say, it was really nice being with you today. Thank you, you've been very kind. I, I got to be leaving now. I won't be, I won't be seeing you again. And... Uh, this is what I want you to be careful about. People among your own selves are going to deceive you. They'll even use the word of God to lead you astray, so you better know it. You better keep your nose in the Bible. Stay fellowshipping together as a church. Be strong. But you know what? I, I can't do anything else, Paul would say today, but to commend you to the hands and the love and to the heart and the eyes of God and to his holy word. If a church fails to do that, then it is not a church of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, it may be a 501c3 in the state of California, and it may be a federally tax-exempt uh, institution in the federal government of the IRS. It may be some sort of church of some sort of religious persuasion, but it does not belong to Jesus Christ unless it commends people to God and to the word of his grace. And no one wants to talk about these things today. This is all introduction still. We haven't started yet. Did you read with me several times the word Babylon? Did you, did you read that? Did you hear that? Do you remember that? In chapter 17, he warns and he tells us about Babylon. You say, well, what on earth can Babylon mean? Well, before we get into this, I find it extremely exciting that Babylon's on the front page of every major newspaper around the world this Sunday morning. It is today called Iraq. The land of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire specifically the area just not so far from Baghdad whatsoever, but the ancient area of Babylon. But Babylon has several meanings. Did you know that Jerusalem in the scriptures, in the book of Revelation later on, did you know that the city of Jerusalem is going to be called spiritual Babylon? Did you know that? Did you know that the world system is called Babylon? Did you know that Babylon's called Babylon? <laughs> Did you know that there's a, a religious institution and system that's called Babylon that has even called itself Babylon? Though it be not even in the Middle East. A lot of applications to this word Babylon. What is this word? Jot it down, please. Babylon appears over 290 times in the Bible, second only to Jerusalem. It is one of the oldest cities, regions in all of the world. It's argued that that region is the oldest place in the world. Secondly, all, listen, all cult 
and occultic beliefs and practices can be traced back to the ancient Babylonian worship systems. Did you hear me, everybody? Are you guys still awake? I need some... If you failed history, you may not like this morning's message because there's a lot of history. Occultic practices, Church of Satan, Ouija boards, the Druids, um, seances, uh, witchcraft, white magic, all that junk, all that stuff, all the way to the cults that knock on your door, their belief system can be traced in their doctrine, which they always want to keep from you. (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. Church of Satan can be traced back to Babylon and they try to hide their doctrinal statement? Just open up a Satanic Bible. You've got the nine statements of a Satanist. It's right there at the beginning of the Satanic Bible. And the Satanic Bible, Satanism, is not even really a religious system. It's a atheistic philosophy in which you worship yourself. I get, can you trace that back to Babylon? Maybe, maybe you can. Are you, are you going to say that it's occultic? Cause Satanism is not necessarily a cult. The, the church of Satan of Anton LaVey. I mean, you're going to say the church of Satan. You're referring to Anton LaVey, the satanic Bible. That's not necessarily a cultic. It just uses religious imagery for a philosophy about the worship of self. It's an atheistic philosophy. So this, so I, I, now I'm getting a little concerned. If you're going to start throwing out claims, you got to make sure you draw. You got to draw a distinction between Satanism and a Ouija board. You got to draw a distinction between Satanism and other occultic pri- practices. Many of those are very spiritual and religious in nature, where Satanism simply uses religious imagery simply to simply to represent an ideology that says, nope, not going to worship a God that tells me to deny myself. I'm going to worship myself so that I can fulfill myself and do whatever I think is best because I should be the God that should be worshiped. That's why the most important holiday of a Satanist for the Church of Satan is their own personal birthday. That's their most, that's their number one holiday because why, why, sir, why celebrate the holy day of some God when you can celebrate, well, the holy day for yourself, which is the God you should serve? Like, if you're going to say something about the church of Satan, at least be halfway represented somewhere close. I don't know. Why, this goes all the way back to ancient Babylon. I think it goes right back to, I don't know, the depravity in man. But okay. Um, all right. That, all right. He did get over 290 times Babylon is used. I do like the fact that he acknowledged that, well, this is called Babylon, and this is called Babylon, and this is called Babylon. So even he acknowledges that in the Bible, a lot of things are represented, or or a lot of things are called Babylon, which should tell you maybe it's not as easy as you think it is. Because if Babylon is identified, let's say, 15 different ways in the scriptures, then what do you do when you come to a passage? that may not clearly identify it, then which one of those different ways of, of, of Babylon being identified do you import into, say, Revelation chapter 17? I, I don't know if he's going to give us any answers, but let's continue. It can be traced to ancient Babylonian worship practices. Third, the Bible teaches that the name or term Babylon will make a great comeback upon the world scene prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's being assembled as you and I speak right now. Now, he's referring to it as a system, the Babylonian system. So he's just seeming to imply that Babylon in Revelation 17 is not a city. 
It's not a place. It's not a nation. It's not Babylon and the Euphrates. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. It, it, it's not, it doesn't appear to even be the apostate church, even though the apostate church could possibly be a part of it. It seems to be more just a system, an anti-God system seems to be where how he's interpreting it. And remember, when we looked at those five views, this, this wasn't one of them. So just to demonstrate, there's even more views out there. But, but he hasn't specifically said yet, but we're going to give him the opportunity to, hopefully, before this episode is over. Fourth, in the last 2,000 years, the Babylonian worship systems that have come out of ancient Babylon have been reawakened and are drastically increasing, specifically noted over the last 500 years. Drastically increasing. What makes Babylon so important? Why is it the second most mentioned city or term in the Bible? It was man's birthplace for one thing in this manner yes it's located in the region of the cradle of civilization yes it's in the region geographically listen of the tigris and euphrates river valleys but most importantly in relation to revelation 17 it is the birthplace of man's attempt to offer up religion in place of god in place of a relationship will you please mark that down Babylon introduces mankind to an aberrant or an imitation worship system. That's why it's called Babylon. That's why the term Babylon is so important. Genesis chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. Little genealogy here. Genesis 10, 8. That's how far back you got to go. Cush begot Nimrod... And he began to be a mighty man on the face of the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said of Nimrod, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was called Babel. Ladies and gentlemen, the birth of Babylon was by a man, a founder of a city. His name was Nimrod. And he founded a tower called Babel. El, if you know a little bit, you don't know much, you don't need to know much about Hebrew. El is what? God. Bab is gate, gateway. Nimrod founded a place and declared it and named it Babel, the gateway to God. Now, why would he find a city that was named or that would be named by his choosing gateway to God? Well, because he was a wonderful, he, you know, believer. Oh, he was a believer, all right. But he wasn't so wonderful. For the Hebrews suggest here that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, many Jewish scholars believe that the Hebrew construction of this means that he was a hunter of men's souls in competition with God. God wanted to save. Nimrod wanted to control man. He built a tower. Called it Bad-El the gateway to God. What was Nimrod's expertise? Was he a bricklayer, anybody? No, he got bricklayers to build the tower. Was he a machinist? No, he was an archer. Nimrod was an archer. And according to non-biblical history, non-biblical history, according to secular history, Nimrod reached the pinnacle of of that great ziggurat or that great man-made skyscraper. And what did he do? He took an arrow and he reached 
back with it and pointed it toward heaven with the intent to shoot God down out of heaven. That's why Nimrod is understood to be the prototype of the first Antichrist. He was the first man who offered an aberrant religion in place of God. And that now, I would just challenge you to look that up. Um, I, I cannot do that right now. Did, is, what sources do we have to say that Nimrod climbed the Tower of Babel, the, 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 the ziggurat, the, I think that's what it's, uh, it's referred to, the tower, pull back his bow and shoot an arrow into the sky to shoot and bring God down? What, what sources do we have? Is it numerous manuscripts? Like, what do we have? He doesn't quote a source or anything from this. He says non-biblical history. So do we take anything from that? Do, do we grab onto that? How, how certain is he of that uh, story? I'm just going to look here. I'm just going to look here. I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, because I'm just curious, because sometimes you can just type in something and immediately find out, wait a minute, that did not happen. So did Nimrod shoot an arrow into the heavens? Uh, see here. Uh, what do we have here? Okay, we have legends, all right? Legends of Old Testament characters, chapter 23. Um, what do we have here? I'm looking here um, to see if we have something from this. I'm looking, I'm looking in this, this is a, a something called Legends of Old Testament Characters, chapter 23. I'm trying to find where we see supposedly him shooting the arrow into the heavens to bring God down. All right. Okay. I'm looking, I'm looking. Where is this? Where is it? Um, I'm not. Okay, I'm not seeing this. I'm not saying it's not in here. It would take me forever to have to read through this. Well, I'll do some more searching for it there. Um, here we go. Here's a... Uh, it says, uh, did Nimrod shoot an arrow into the heavens? Okay. This is a question our experts keep getting from time to time. Now we have to get, now we have to, now we have got the complete detailed explanation and answer for everyone who is interested. All right. It says, uh, talks a little bit about Nimrod. Uh, let's see here. Okay. All right, I'm looking here. Does it say? Hey, it doesn't appear that it gives us any information. All right, it says, uh, okay, well, supposedly this gives me, it's supposed to give us the answer, and I'm not seeing the answer anywhere, okay? Um, that this is supposed to be the answer, 
εσύ. Okay, I'm not seeing this. Okay, I'm I'm not seeing where this supposedly happened. That this is bizarre. So you would think it would be like, okay, hey, we're here to answer this question. I'm not seeing it there. Uh Okay, now they've got I'm looking here. Okay, according to a uh, a Jewish midrash called uh, the Safir HaYasher or Book of jo- of Joshua Uh, states in chapter 9, and the building of the tower was unto them a transgression and a sin, and they began to build it. And whilst they were building against the Lord God of heaven, they imagined in their hearts to war against him and to ascend into heaven. And all these people and all the families divided themselves into three parts. The first said, we will ascend into heaven and fight against him. The second said, we will ascend into heaven and place our own gods there and serve them. And the per- third part said, we will ascend to heaven and smite him with bows and spears. All right, that doesn't have anything about Nimrod doing that. Um, the Jewish Encyclopedia notes that these legends about Nimrod, the tower and the arrows passed into Muslim or Islamic traditions as well with some modifications. After many years had spent in the construction of the tower, Nimrod ascends to its top, but he was greatly surprised to find that the heavens were still as remote from him as they was when he was on the ground. Undaunted by his failure, Nimrod planned another way to reach the heavens. He had a large chest made with an opening in the top and another in the bottom. At the four corners of the chest stakes were fixed with a piece of flesh on each other. Then four large vultures, or according to another source, four eagles previously fed upon the flesh, were attached to the stakes below the meat. Accompanied by one of his most faithful Visors, Nimrod entered the chest and the four great birds soared up into the air, carrying the chest with them. The visor opened alternatively the upper and lower doors of the chest in order that by looking in both directions, he might know whether or not he was approaching heaven. When they were so high up that he could he could see nothing in either direction, Nimrod took his bow and shot arrows in the sky. Gabriel therefore therefore sent the arrows back stained with blood so that Nimrod was convinced that he had avenged himself upon Abram's God. That seems to come from the Jewish encyclopedia. So there's a little bit of it um, there, okay? Um, So the legends have, these legends have been depicted or alluded to in a few films, Uh, first, there is John uh, Houston's The Bible in the Beginning, 1966, in which Nimrod is played by Stephen Boyd, who previously played uh, Masala and Ben-Hur. Uh, then there's an Iranian fr- film called Abraham, the Friend of God. Um, then we have the t- uh, 2014 uh, Noah, I guess, where some of this idea is there. And then I guess... Uh, We have, a, uh, we have a reference to the Tower of Babel and the X-Men Apocalypse. So I guess this, this story has kind of shown up. I don't know. It's, it's not as... 
It's not exactly the way like he just climbed the tower and shot. It seems like he, according to the Jewish encyclopedia, he climbed the tower and was like, wait a minute, I'm not there yet. So then he gets this, like this animal flesh and puts like a, a box on top of it so that the birds will come and dr- grab the flesh and then he'll be in the box carried up to the heavens. And then, when, so there's put it this way, there, there's a lot of mythology and speculation about it. So I don't know if we can dogmatically in any way say that Nimrod shot an arrow into heaven, demonstrating that Babylon was opposed to God. I don't, I don't know if we, if I would even, I don't know if I would even throw that out there, put it to, if I throw it out there, I would have to put in a lot of qualifiers about how outlandish the story appears to be. And that there are a lot of different seems versions and sources of it and And people have done lots of different things with it. All right, let's continue. He would dethrone God himself. He's called Nimrod. Have you ever heard anybody say, what a Nimrod? Have you ever heard that? I've heard that before. What a Nimrod. Well, this is the Nimrod. And um, what's interesting about him is uh, a lot of things. He had a wife by the name of Semiramis, okay? Now, um, is anybody anybody listening? Can you raise your hand? Because this is where... Raise your hand high. I need some encouragement here. I got to get away from you. Look at it. I look like Ben Franklin. <laughs> I feel like Ben Franklin sometimes. Huh? His wife's name was Semiramis. Okay, I need you to hang on to your seat. Semiramis. She became known by virtue of the Tower of Babel and that worship system that brought about the encouragement of Nimrod to those that were following him. Remember, the earth spoke how many languages in that day? That's why it's called Babel. They spoke Hebrew, apparently, huh? Interesting, huh? His wife, Semiramis, founded this religious system based upon her husband's zeal and power and influence. She was known in history, and you can look this up in secular history. You don't have to study Bible history for this. You can go to uh, Encyclopedia of Britannica. You know what she was famous for? She was the first priestess of heaven and hell. Semiramis. Well, who said they did? The ancient Chaldeans or the, the ancient Babylonians? They declared her the priestess of heaven and hell. Why? What led about to the ancients declaring her that? Well, I'm going to ask the guys to put up a slide right now if they would of this region. Do we have the slides or no? We have no slides. Okay, not not so good. Come back next service. Maybe we'll have them. Well, if you get a good map, there's an area just outside of, or just south, I should say, of the area of Mosul, which is Nineveh. A lot of warring going on right now. Hopefully there's a lot of voting going on there today. And uh, there's an area called Nimrud. Nimrud to this day. It's a very important place. It's too bad we don't have these slides because I have. Okay, got to got to interrupt again. I mean, well, I mean that's the whole point of this is critiquing and analyzing it. Remember, the whole thing we're doing is this is supposed to be him telling us who I'm identifying who Mystery Babylon is in Revelation 17. At least now he's back to Babylon. He took that long detour talking about everything other than this, but now he's talking about Nimrod's wife, Semiramis. It is spelled S-E-M-I-R-A-M-I-S, Semiramis, okay? Now, this is important to note. 
before you ever dive into the possible identity of someone not mentioned in the Bible or of Semiramis, the supposed mysterious woman, it's important to note that the name Semiramis is not directly mentioned anywhere in the biblical canon of Scripture. Because of this and the conflicting historical information given about her, Christians must proceed with caution and trying to piece together the details of Semiramis's life, especially the details that claim any biblical relevance. So he's trying to identify Babylon. Now he's saying Nimrod had a wife and guess what she was? And he's saying it with great certainty. Remember, I keep putting forth this philosophy. So many times in the church, preachers give you certainty at the expense of truth. The truth is, we know nothing about Semiramis for any level of certainty because there's conflicting historical information about her. That is very important, all right? Now, I have an article here going through a lot of, well, different ideas, right? Um, uh, supposedly speaking to her, I'll just read a little bit of this. In, in Sumerian language, Semiramis's name is Semer uh, Amat. She's famous. Uh, she's the famous queen regent of the Assyrian Empire, who supposedly reigned from 811, 811 to 806 BCE before the Common Era or BC. According to historical documents, she's known as a legendary warrior who exercised political power like no other commanding territory that stretched from Asia Minor to modern-day Iran. Historians describe her as a rare beauty, a fine military strategist, a master builder, and some even say she was the builder and founder of Babylon. But Eusebius, a well-respected ancient biblical scholar and historian, identifies Semiramis as the wife of Nimrod. Now, please note, it was Eusebius who identifies Semiramis as the wife of Nimrod. Based on a combination of all these assumptions, countless other historians and scholars have written volumes about Semiramis, transforming the historical queen, Samu Ramat, into the legendary queen Semiramis. So you have Eusebius, who really kind of comes up with the idea. He's not mentioning any of this. He's like, oh, it's simple. Just, just look up in an encyclopedia. A- and again, what so many times when pastors say that, it's almost code for, there's no need to look anything up. It's so simple. Just trust me, giving you certainty at the expense of truth. Uh, one of the most recent traditions or renditions of the ever-evolving lore of Semiramis was included in the book the Two Babylons, written in 1853 by Scottish minister Alexander uh, Hislop. In the book, the author affirms Eusebius's claims that Semiramis was Nimrod's wife and, el- and elaborates on her rise to power, citing his uh, Greek historical records as references and proof. Hislop asserts that Semiramis was instrumental in Nimrod's plan to rebel against God, and he speaks of the woman's unusual ability to manipulate the will of men, all right? So they go through a lot of what uh, Hislop had to say, but that's where the book kind of... That's taken from a book written in the 1800s, and we would have to and, and listen to this. The truth is, like all legends, the stories of Semiramis have been exaggerated, changed, and expanded over thousands of years of oral tradition and interpretation. So it would not be wise to base any cause or belief on information that contains so little 
substance. They go through and look at like, there's all these claims being made in these books. And I remember, look, the two Babylons, when I, uh, when I, my first Bible Institute um, in Papillion, Nebraska that I attended, this book was talked about and recommended. And I remember us going to Divine Truth a bookstore in Papillion, Nebraska, and buying a copy because like, you've got to have this book, this book's, and almost like it was just guaranteed historical fact. And now there's, you know, studies like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we're not so sure right here about some of these things. Um, but, and I could go through more information here about, about all of this, but yeah, uh, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of information. The bottom line is we, she's not mentioned in the Bible and there's conflicting historical information. So why, if we're trying to identify, if we're really going to try to identify Babylon in Revelation 17, why are we chasing down something that is, I, I mean, a lot of the things he's mentioned here are, we don't even know if they're accurate. We don't know if Nimrod truly shot an arrow into heaven. We don't know that. We, we, there's, there's speculation coming from all kinds, from Islamic sources, coming from all kinds of different sources. We don't know. And and even the stories are different. Samaria, Samaria, if I can say her name right, Samaramis, there's all kinds of conflicting information about her as well. This is always very bad to bring this kind of stuff into our preaching because it gives us this, it, it tries to give people the idea that we've got something, some information and then we find out that maybe our information is not accurate. All right, let's try to finish this up. Actual photographs. I've had, had the opportunity to take photographs of the gates of this great Babylonian uh, stronghold that have been unearthed. And they've been captured by the Germans when they were invading Turkey. And they took them to Berlin. And they reconstructed them, by the way. And you can see them in much of their grandeur. They're massive of these great Babylonian walls from the area of Nimrud. Nimrod was a real man. Semiramis, again, was his wife. Semiramis gave birth to a son. You want to hear how she gave birth or how it came about that she became pregnant? It says that Semiramis had become pregnant by a beam of light that descended from heaven. And thus, Tammuz was born and grew into the spirit of his father, Nimrod, for he loved to hunt. And his mother, Semiramis, cared for him greatly. And as his father was a hunter and very talented at hunting, Nimrod, uh, excuse me, uh, Tammuz, Tammuz was a hunter as well. And he became a great hunter. So during the time of his young manhood, it says that he was brutally killed on one of his hunting expeditions by a wild boar. His mother, Semiramis, was so grieved at the death of her only son, that she prayed to the gods of the underworld, according to ancient history. And she prayed and... According to ancient legend myths and constant retelling of the story with very little actual sources for anything, okay? He's like, this is historical fact. No, no, it's not. There is so much... Semiramis, just if you don't know, she's been credited for forming the tradition of the Christmas tree, the Easter bunny, and some, uh, and, and identifying her as the original whore of Babylon. And according to the Congressional Medal of Honor Society website, America's own statue, a statue of liberty speaks of the legend. Okay. In addition to standing for liberty, she's the statue of liberty is derived from the 
image of Queen Semiramis of Babylon, who is famed for beauty, strength, and wisdom. I mean, she's connected to anything. So, it, it, like, oh, why, why, why do we do this in the church? Why, why, why? We, it's our responsibility to be as careful as we can. You want to, you want us to understand Revelation 17 and understand who Babylon is, and you're taking us down the trail of I don't know, myth, legend, speculation, theories. No, how about stick with the Bible and help us figure out the identity of this? There, there's so much to this. There's so much, and oh man, oh. Okay, I'm just, there's, there's so much here. Um, okay, yeah, the, I, I want, I want to, uh, there's more I want to read here about, about some of the speculation, but you, you can read about the speculation. You'll find sites are like, it's this way. You'll find sites going, no, it's this way. You'll find sites going, no, it's this way. But it, yeah, okay. All right, let's continue. Lamented for 40 days. So great was the lamentation of Semiramis that her lamentation by the Babylonians were, was called, or later became called, Lent. The lamentation. So great were her prayers, so fervent was her intercession for her son that the gods of the underworld released Tammuz and he was risen from the dead. At such an event, the world at that time then began to declare to her to be the priestess of heaven and hell. Just make sure you understand that some of these legends and myths about Semiramis is where people claim that Christianity just copied these ancient legends about Semiramis and have, you know, Mary in a sense of Semiramis, her son, she has this, her son, she becomes pregnant in some kind of supernatural way. She has a son who dies, who is resurrected. Many, many skeptics, many atheists, atheists grab these stories of Semiramis and go, see, that's where Christianity took its story from. It just copied it. It's just a copy of ancient paganism. There's been entire films made that way that make that claim. Well, then Christians are like, absolutely not. And then we go run to the Semiramis legends and then we're like, but the, the, the legends are true. Well, how about this? Nobody knows what's actually true or not true about her because there's conflicting reports. There's, there's much discrepancy and lack of knowledge about her. So why would we, in a sense, say, no, these stories are true, they're accurate, they're historical fact, because that's literally then handing skeptics and atheists going, well, see, Semiramis, in a sense, divine conception, birth, death, resurrection. That's Christianity in a nutshell. They just stole the story. Why, why would we want to contribute to that by by, well, bringing this stuff up in our sermons, unless we're going to say, wait a minute, there are similarities. Do similarities prove that one is true and one is false? Not only that, though, there's lots of discrepancy in the stories themselves. All right, we're almost done. She, by her prayer, brought Tammuz back from the dead, out of hell, and back into life. You say, Jack, I read that in Greek mythology. 
You'll read a lot of things in Greek mythology that are tied to ancient history or ancient demonic or biblical events. For example, in Greek history, in mythological history, there are things about a worldwide flood. Well, let me ask you, do you believe in a worldwide flood because of mythology or do you believe in a worldwide flood because of the Bible? Please note, now he's saying Semiramis is not mythology, it's historical fact. He's saying these stories about Semiramis is historical fact, but he's, I guess what he's arguing is that, I don't know, it's demonic. It's factual, it's demonic. Greek mythology is mythology, but hey, does that mean this is not true? I mean, is that, is that what he's saying? Is the story true? But it was demonic? It like, I, I, I don't know, maybe he's going to clarify here in a minute. It's the Bible. It's just part of Satan's plan and the way that man goes and spinning things, making them stories and making them lore. But listen to this. Again, Nimrod married Semiramis. Semiramis had a child by the sunbeam that hit her in the belly. Child born, Tammuz is his name. He dies. She prays for 40 days. The child is released from hell where he was bound and given life. What I'm telling you right now is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, okay? So old is it that Israel adopted the worship of what I just mentioned to you. Did you know that? Israel was guilty of this worship. Okay, I think what he's doing is he's getting most of that information. I believe that's coming from the book, The Two Babylons, written in 1853 by Scottish minister Alexander Hislop, H-I-S-L-O-P, Two Babylons. You can get a copy of it. Um, I, I used to have a copy somewhere. I thought we had it in our church library. Um, I may still have it there. I'd have to look. You see, Two Babylons. You see here, you can probably find it for free online. If you go to Amazon, you can get Two Babylons for 99 cents for your Kindle. There you go. Uh, 99 cents for your Kindle. You can look at it. Now, it makes lots of claims. But remember, you, you have to have, where did this information come from? And then you would have to go, are there other, are there people who call this into question and call and, and have some major issues with it? But that seems to be where he's getting his information. He's like, you know, this is historical fact. Are you saying it's historical fact? Or are you saying it's legend? If it's legend, then why are you citing it? Because if it's all legend, then what do you tr- What do we know about her? What do we know at all about supposedly Nimrod's wife? And what does that do in helping us identify who Babylon is in uh, Revelation 17? Again, her name is Semiramis, S-E-M-I-R-A-M-I-S, if you would like to do a little bit more research on her and just try to look for as multiple, as many sources as possible and just immediately see how conflicting the information is and how much of it is simply thrown out as myth, legend, and we have no level of certainty. If we have no level of certainty, then why is it being preached from a pulpit as if it's factual, supposedly to help us understand the factual identity of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17? I've got some major issues with it. He spent more time Think about this. He just spent more time in a sermon preaching about Semiramis. Or, hang on, let me, make this, let me state this correctly and factually. He spent more time, it, it feels to me, in this episode, maybe it's not completely mathematically correct. I'll state it this way. He spent a lot of time in this episode on Semiramis 
who's never mentioned in the Bible to preach a sermon about Revelation 17. You draw your own conclusions from that. We still don't have a clear idea what he believes about Revelation 17, even though he said it's crystal clear. I've given you five possible views. Maybe we're going to find out sooner or later what this maybe sixth view is. But you've now been introduced to Semiramis. You can go figure out what you want. You know the book, Two Babylons. If you have any questions, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, that took a whole lot longer than I wanted, but I had to start looking some of that up. He's just making all of these claims, and I I can't stand when I hear, it's historical fact, but I'm not going to tell you where, (laughs) okay? And then you do a Google search. No, (laughs) that's not completely accurate. No, we we always get this question and you're like, wait a minute. It took five seconds to do a Google search and they're like, "Uh, not so much. But he's like, it's a fact. Like, well, (laughs) it shouldn't be that easy. You should never do that in 2022. You should not. Because you've got people sitting in your church with their phone, who in many cases will immediately go to the Google and start looking it up. You don't think it's true, but it will happen. Maybe it depends on the age group of your of your of the congregation. But if you've got younger people, they're just going to be like, "Oh, really?" And they're sitting there looking at their phone, probably listening to you, going, "This guy has no clue what he's talking about." We live in a new world. Preachers can't just get away from with this stuff anymore because we're listening. And I was immediately Googling and immediately I'm find out like, you know, hey, we've got it. I mean, immediately I find us an article that says, uh, I, I like this, uh, an, an important reminder about exploring names outside the biblical canon. Before we dive into the possible identity of this mysterious woman, Semiramis, it is important to note that the name Semiramis is not directly mentioned anywhere within the biblical canon or scripture. Because of this and the conflicting historical information given about her, Christians must proceed with caution when trying to piece together the details of her life, especially the details that we claim have any biblical reference. That took me like seconds to find that. Hey, whoa, whoa, slow. That's even from a Christian perspective. Go, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. (laughs) You can't do that. All right. Oh, that drives me crazy. Well, well, we didn't get far, but we spent an hour and 13 minutes trying to get far, but we went an hour and 13 minutes without getting far. But we're going to get there sooner or later, okay? And we'll, we'll try to add in some other stuff we're just going to turn this into an entire series about this. So I don't know. We'll find a way to make this as, as productive as we can. And if you want to keep up with the entire series, again, the best way, download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, search for Theology Central, make us your broadcaster of choice. We Look, we're on the air three, four hours a day almost, and we're always uploading new content Church One app puts all the content in specific series, so it makes it easy to find, and you get notified every time we upload a new uh, message and every time we're live on the air. So download the Church One app today, and you won't miss an episode. There you go. Or if you listen to us on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. We are trying to break that down into different playlists on YouTube as well. The other podcast apps, we cannot do that, so just you, you scroll through you know, we've done almost 2,000 episodes in just about two and a half years. We're almost at 2,000. I think we're almost at 2,000 episodes in just a little over two years. That's almost 1,000 episodes a year. Um, so 
that's uh, that's a lot of content. So, yeah, that's why that's why you you subscribe to us, <laughs> okay? Because the amount of content makes up for the lack of quality. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. Email me newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.